You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 70 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I am fair to middling, I think would be about the best approximation. Why fair to middling? Well, it's just one of those days, Valerie. You know, some yes. days, you know, not every day is a diamond. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> not every day is a diamond. It's not so much a rock, more like a, I don't know, one of those you know, rose crystal quartz things. That's, okay. Yeah, it's that's probably that. progress. Yeah, well, you know, it's okay. We're not a rock. That's a good thing. No, 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 not a piece of coal. <laughs> nah, not a piece of coal. What about okay. you? What are you? How are you? What's uh, I'm a bit sick, so if I have a coughing fit, I will attempt to mute myself. So everyone, don't be, you know, too too worried. Then I'm going to cough in your ear. But, yeah, I haven't felt 100% this week, put it that way. See, look at us. We're just, you know, like it, this is your podcast for the <laughs> half sick, half quiet, the fair to middling podcast. Yeah, the fair to middling podcast. Yeah. But nevertheless, we're here because yeah. we love doing this so much. Oh, we do. And I have to say, it seems like we caused somewhat of an international incident recently. We did. We did. When we revealed, who who knew? That's right. When we both revealed and confessed that we dog ear our books. Oh, my goodness me. I'll tell you what. So, (laughs) so we got tweets about it and were many, 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 and roundly and soundly told off. And And Instagrams. And Instagrams. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to take this to the, I'm going to take charge of this debate. And I put it on my (laughs) Facebook page. And there was this. long and involved conversation debate about who dog-eared and who used bookmarks. And mm. what I found really fascinating was the number of systems involved in the dog-earing. Like we had people who, you know, would do a small fold of the top, you know, to mark the page. But then if there was a quote that they particularly liked, that they would then fold the bottom of the page as well. Mm. And depending on whether there was one or two, the fold might be large or it might be small. Or, um, it was honestly, I, I was in hysterics by the time we got to the bottom <laughs> of that because it was very, very funny. And there was one tweet I remember, and I can't, sorry, remember who it was, who said that their, um, their copy of Stephen King's On Writing looks like an origami handbook. <laughs> so many, so many folds oh. in the book. And I loved that. I thought, yeah, that's, well, I think that that's exactly what a book like that should look like. But anyway, that's just me. You know, yes. the dog era. Yes, yes, the dog era. But you know what? We, we can avoid dog earing if we just highlight on Kindle. Well, yeah, if you we know? use Kindle. Well, if you use Kindle, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, some books I read on Kindle, some books I read, you know, in real life. And yeah. the great thing about using a book on Kindle is that you can highlight and you can annotate. So that's wonderful. And you, not only do you not have to dog ear your books because the Kindle remembers where you are mm-hmm. and just brings you straight back to that point. And not only that, if you're reading on your iPhone and you read to a certain point 
and then you go to your iPad or your whatever tablet device and open your Kindle there, it takes you to the same point that where you are on your iPhone. So I Mm -hmm. think that that's really helpful as well. Mm. Mm. But anyway, um, but people might ask, and I think we might have mentioned this a long time ago, whether, I mean, how to get those highlights out of Kindle jail, so to speak. And um, I did write a blog post on this. So if you did, on how to print off your Kindle. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Yes. And if anyone has other ideas, now my friend Clinton referred me to a site called clippings.io, which is um, another way to get your. Uh, highlights out of Kindle jail, mm-hmm. um, which I then went to explore, but it looked quite complicated to me. But oh, if okay. anyone else has any other tips, please do let us know. And if you do use clippings.io, let us know and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But let us move on to the world Moving of writing on. and blogging and publishing mm. this week. I think you should take the first one out because you have a dog called Scout. Oh, okay. <laughs> His name is Procrasty Pup, Anyway, uh, yes, my dog called Scout. Yes, okay, so the biggest news in publishing, of course, in the last week has been the release of Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman, which Mm. is, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout and Atticus 20 years on. Mm. And I think one of the biggest conversations that I've had this week with people is it's not, you know, isn't this exciting, it's not whatever, it's are you going to read it? That's what I found really interesting was the number of people, people have very strong ideas before the book even came out as to whether or not they were even going to read it. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Well, I'm not going to. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm not going to. Why? Well, several reasons for that, okay? First of all, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those books from my, you know, youth that I, I just... You know, it's got a very special place in my heart. That set of characters has a very special place in my heart. Mm. And I know that this was the book that that book came from. I know that this is essentially the first round, the first draft, if you want, of that book. I'm sure this is not a first draft, first draft. Mm. Um, But so basically the book came, the To Kill a Mockingbird came from um, Ghost That a Watchman was submitted to the editor. The editor read the book, said, what you actually need to do is bring out this backstory. So Mm. she went away and she wrote the backstory and that became To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, to me that, you know, I I just sort of feel like, "Mm, okay. So I loved To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm not entirely sure that I want to go further with those characters when they're so close to my heart. That's my first reason. My second reason is I'm not entirely sure that Harper Lee... I'm, the controversy surrounding the release of this book mm-hmm. has tainted the book for me. Okay. Because I don't know that Harper Lee, if she was, like, she has, that, that book's been sitting around for 55 years. Yes. And she has not chosen to publish it. Okay. 55 years is a long time. Like, when they were harassing her five years after To Kill a Mockingbird for a sequel or, you know, whatever, she did not release this book. Yes. And so, and her sister, who looked after all her stuff did not release this book and then her sister dies and mm. all of a sudden this book is being released and I, I to me I, it just feels like a money-making exercise for the lawyer okay so I actually look you know what I've not actually articulated any of these thoughts before <laughs> but now that I'm saying them I feel quite strongly about it okay wow yes you certainly do That's, okay yeah so there you go so well, you know there you go I suppose it's like remember when Picnic and Hanging Rock's final chapter was released all those years later. Some I people... didn't read that either. Right. Okay. Are you going to watch Full House when it comes back <laughs> on television? I didn't, watch, 
I didn't watch that the first time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so no, probably not going to line up for that either. All right. Well, let us know if you're. Go- are you going to read Go Set or Watchmen? Um, yeah, I'd love to know. Mm. I'll probably read it. I must. Well, admit, you just I, out I of think, curiosity. I think you should read it, and then you can come back and tell us what you think. The other thing is that the Pink Fibro Book Club. Yes. Um, of course, which is the book club that I run mostly via the Facebook group. Um, I asked. I, I and put it's that an in, awesome book club. Everyone should check it out if you're into uh, yeah, reading it's great, books. Yeah, You know, and and one of the questions I you know like I sort of put a question in there just this morning. What are you reading? Yeah. And several people have come back and said they're reading Ghosts at a Watchman right. and not not loving it. Oh. So, uh, it's yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I saw a review on Reading's blog. Uh, one of their staff members had read it and hadn't loved it. But then John Page from Pages and Pages yes. and Boomerang Books really really liked it. So I guess it's one of those. I don't know. Anyway, you well, tell us what you think, yes. Valerie. And if, if readers, um, if listeners have read it, um, then please, you know, tell us your thoughts. I'd be really interested to know what you think. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So, well, let's move on to something quite different. And it was mm. just a Now that I've cute... had that little soapbox. Yeah, moment, I reckon. Let's do that. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> well, this was a cute um, uh, post on uh, Slate's culture blog, Browbeat, and it was the original ghostwriter behind Nancy Drew was one of the most interesting YA writers of all time. And it's basically an article about someone called Mildred Wirt Benson, who wrote the vast majority of the first, say, 30 or so Nancy Drew books back, you know, as early as 1930-something. So she actually wrote 23. She ghost wrote 23 of the first 30 Nancy Drew books because the um, author of Nancy Drew, you know, the name on the actual book was Carolyn Keane. But over many years, Carolyn Keane was actually many, many different people. Now, did you have a read of this particular um, link, Al? I did read this link. I, I loved it. I, you mm. know, I, I was a Nancy Drew. She wasn't my favourite detective, like, when I was reading, because I've always really enjoyed, you know, I was Famous Five, Trixie Belden, yes. Encyclopedia Brown. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid, I really loved the whole mystery thing. Yes. And I wouldn't say Nancy Drew was my absolute favourite. I did like her. You know, she had red hair and stuff. Mm. <laughs> um, but because um, she was, uh, to me, even back when I was reading them in the, what, 70s, she was kind of old-fashioned then, you know, mm. you know, even more so than the famous five, strangely. Yes. Um, but I loved uh, – she's such a seminal character and I Absolutely. loved the idea of her, like, and the fact that she's still out there. Like, my boys have borrowed Nancy Drew books from the um, from the, the really? library. And she's like, yeah. And <laughs> she's like this young, spunky, you know, detective. She's about 14 currently. Yeah. You know, she moves around a bit. Mm. Um, and – she, yeah, I, I found, yeah, I found it really interesting. So I, when I saw this link, I had to read it and I was really interested. She's a fantastic character, like the the author uh, that we're talking about, mm. Mildred, is it Mildred? Mildred, yeah. yeah. Is a fantastic character herself. Mm. Um, and I found it interesting that she went on to write her own series. Yes, Penny um, Parker. Penny Parker. Mm. Um and of course, you know, which wasn't as successful as the um, Nancy Drew. As Nancy Drew. Yeah, but and it, what's interesting is that Mildred actually remained largely unknown, except for people around her, until uh, as the Nancy Drew writer, until she testified in a 1980 trial for a case involving Nancy Drew publishers, and that was the first published public acknowledgement 
of her involvement with the series. So um, what's interesting in that is when that came out into the public, Nancy Drew fans who remembered those first 30 books or, you know, 23 of those 30 books that she wrote, uh, started contacting her and she started receiving fan mail from around the world and back in 1999 when she was 94 she was saying like 94 and she was still a journalist like she was a journalist to the day she died at her desk yes i know at 80 at 96 amazing died at her desk yeah and she was as i say she's a fantastic character in herself yeah, and she was saying that the original fans now are in their 60s and 70s, but they give them to their grandchildren, and I hear from them, which is really sweet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a great it's, – it's really worth reading, um, you know, following the link in the show notes and reading that story because particularly if you are like me, remember Nancy Drew, you know, from reading her as a child and stuff like that because it's re- just a great story. Yeah, and just really committed as a writer to – you know, to continue being a journalist, even writing obituaries, writing all sorts of things right until her dying day. I think it's um, just commi- committed. Mm. I have a link for you. Oh, good. Yes. I love a link. You know I, I think do. you would. <laughs> I think it's an app actually, but it's oh, an good. app for your kids. Oh, yes. So it's called Lego Storymaker. And I found it on uh, a blog called Educational Technology and Mobile Learning. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Wow. But apparently it is a digital storytelling app for kids. So it's for, you know, I think six plus. Yeah. And it basically gives you a set of tools or gives your kids a set of tools that you can drag and drop. You can use stickers. You can use emoticons, voice recordings and backgrounds. And you can just basically build your own story. But then – yeah, it's really cute. And you can have speech bubbles, but then you can publish and share your book through some kind of in-app reader as well. So you can, you know, give it to your brothers or sisters or your friends or, or whatever. And you can write and record the story yourself, or you can get all your friends and get all your friends to play the different parts of the characters. So there you go. I well, think I have you to say that my boys, that. my boys do um... – my boys do Lego animation. They make nice. stories with Lego, but they do stop motion and they use a program called MyCreate, oh. which is a little, um, it's an iPad app. It's very, very good. Um, they do so stop they, motion. They do stop motion, That's honestly, astounding. for hours. It's, they've been doing it for years and they, they're actually getting quite good at it. And um, they, yeah, so they'll sort of, you know, set up their own little set and they'll have, you know, various things. And they worked out, they use... You know, for puffs of smoke, they'll use cotton wool suddenly, like oh, fly so through clever. the side, and yeah, no, it's it's great. So Lego is awesome for stuff like that. Like for, from a storytelling perspective, yes, those little Lego figures and things that, and you can build your own sets with Lego as well. Yes, um, so it's yeah, it's a it's fantastic for you know, for just I don't know, bringing out creativity in kids. I think so. I reckon that app would be fun. Awesome, love Lego. Um, now you remember, you may remember last week we spoke about a writer who uh, wrote his wrote four novels while losing weight. Oh yes, I remember. Him. And his whole, you know, approach to writing was he could only eat the number of calories as the equivalent of the number of words he wrote. Well, I think that sort of discipline obviously has its place. It's a little bit strange to do it that way. But I came across a post about how uh, Anthony Trollope used a fifteen-minute routine to write forty-plus books, and that's on James Clear's blog. But basically, he wrote. 
Oh, in th- his first novel was published in 1847, and mm. over the next 38 years, he published 47 novels, 18 works of nonfiction, 12 short stories, and two plays. Wow. So, yes, that's a lot. And basically, he explained his strategy in um, uh, the book called Daily Rituals, which uh, I actually have, but it's in a box at the moment because I'm moving house and I haven't unpacked it or haven't moved yet. Um, but what he used to do was to make sure that he would write 250 words every quarter of an hour. So if he sat down for a quarter of an hour or stood up or however he did it, he just made sure 15 minutes, 250 words, no matter what. And that's how he did it. Just, you know, sometimes you just got to make yourself But do you know go. what I find fascinating about that? I'm reading on from that. This man had a wife is all I can say. Yeah. This division of time allowed me to produce over 10 pages of an ordinary novel volume a day. So he wasn't writing, oh, I've got 15 minutes, I'll do 250 words. Yes. He was writing 1,000 words an hour for 10, for 10 hours a day. Yes. And he managed to get, he, he would do that. If I kept that up through 10 months, would have given, as its result, three novels of three volumes each in a year. Yes. Mm. <laughs> okay, yes, he had a wife. Mm. <laughs> All right, but, but still, it's like, like I, I, look, I think anything where you can actually, like what, no matter what you do, no matter what sort of ritual you, you need, you do, mm. you just find one that suits your lifestyle. Yes. That, and the 50, 250 words in 15 minutes is something that, Anyone can have a go. If you're sitting outside swimming lessons, if you're, um, you know, if you've got 15 minutes to wait in the car while you're waiting for school to finish, if you, all of those things that you do, if you can go, I've got, if he, if, if he can do 250 words in 15 minutes, well, so can I. I yeah. can go at that. And it's amazing how quickly they add up. Yeah. When you're doing them like that. So I think any kind of ritual. The other thing I think that he did, which I think is really interesting, is the prioritising things on their true importance. Mm. And I think that that's something else that people um, sometimes where with productivity we fall down Mm. because, you know, we all have different things that we need to do. Um, But, you know, updating your Facebook page is probably not the most important (laughs) thing you need to do first thing in the morning. It's probably what I do because it's just sort of like, oh, it's a nice way to start the day. Yes. Um, but if we were to prioritise based on their true importance and if the writing the novel is what's truly important to you right now, yep. then you need to do that 15 minutes first. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, pr- priorities and discipline. Mm. Well, let us move on to last week we spoke about fewer and less, you know, when you oh, use the word yes. fewer and less. Are we going to have another one of those fun conversations, Val? It is fun. What are you talking <sighs> about? Okay. I wanted to talk about comprises and consists of. Oh, you are such a party animal. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. So many people get, you know, get this wrong. They, they, they make a mistake because they say things like um, the shopping, you know, the shopping cart comprises of milk and sugar and butter and marmalade. But you never say comprises of. You just say the shopping cart comprises milk and sugar and butter and marmalade. Yes? Or you can say the shopping cart consists of milk and sugar and butter and marmalade. So remember, comprises and consists of are very similar, but you never use comprises of. Right. There you go. The pesky of. Now you can all sleep. (laughs) (laughs) We we actually are already sleeping. Oh, thanks. You're having that conversation. (laughs) 
I bet you there are some people oh. who thought that was interesting. I know. Please, <laughs> please tweet Val if you found that fascinating. I, I know. I'm joking. I loved it. It was, it was fabulous. You lie. All right, then. We're going to move on to you then. Who is hey, that? Let's talk about me. <laughs> far more exciting. Tell us about who you spoke to this week. Ah, well, it actually is far more exciting. I spoke to Nicholas Lockerl, who is the co-author with his sister Alison of the Zakora series, which is a new middle grade, um, a new middle grade series for children, which is going to be four books. Currently, book one is out. It came out in June. But the interesting thing about this was when I say new, mm-hmm. I it's actually not new because uh, Nicholas and Alison self-published the series, the first book in the series, in two thousand and eleven, mm-hmm. and then um, it went very well for them uh, in ebook, and then they printed it, and then they went out and sold it, and then recently they they it was picked up by Ashet, um, and it's been re-released. So it's been quite an interesting journey, and it's covered a lot a lot of territory. And uh, we had a really interesting conversation about just how that journey unfolded for them. So I hope that you guys enjoy this. Nicholas and Alison Lockell are the brother-sister team behind the Zakora middle grade fiction series, which was initially indie published but is now being re-released by Hachette Australia, with book one of the four-book series out in June 2015 and book two due on the 27th of October. So hello, Nicholas, and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, so let's, like, I think one of the most incredible things about your story is that you and Alison are a brother and sister, that you have co-authored a four-book series and that you have not killed each other. So how did you actually come to write a novel together, let alone four books? Um, well, I was studying a lot of acting um, when I was in high school and um, I studied script writing and uh, storytelling. Uh, and so I ended up moving down to Sydney. And when I came back up from Sydney, I actually found Ali uh, a huge bookworm and she was doing a lot of short stories. And I had this idea for this story, which I pitched to Ali. And because uh, we had the similar taste in books, I thought that it might be a good idea to write the story together. And, uh, and that was pretty much uh, the start of it all. But we really loosely based the story off of our brothers. Yeah. Off your brothers? Yeah, off our brothers, yeah. We, 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 always, we, we grew up very close. Um, and so it was always a story that we wanted to tell. Okay, um, so you've got two brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so why, why did you think um, that you'd get Alison to help you? Like, why not think I'm going to write this myself? Um, I think it's more fun. Like, you know, when we first started you know, writing together, it was never meant to be uh, a, a book. It was really just a bit of fun, write a story. And um, I, guess it, I guess it was a bit of company, I guess. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, okay. And so it was never meant to be like a big uh, business or anything like that. We just you know, Ali likes stories, and I thought, oh, we'll you know, write a story together. This will be fun. And, uh, and then it kind of grew, and then it became four books, and then it was self-published, and then it kind of went from there. So did you have it, um, like, did you have it sort of scoped out as four books right from the start when you started writing, or did you sort of write the first one and then think, oh, there needs to be more? No, we pretty much plotted out the four books um, straight away. Okay. Uh, like, obviously, it was one story. It, it went from being a trilogy then up to five books, and then we cut it back to four. Okay. But it was always the same story. We just realized that the first book, um, it would have been like a hundred-something thousand words, and we knew that the word count, well, the, the, you know, I guess the average word count for a middle grade a book would be around 50,000 words, and so we ended up cutting it, uh, the first book, I guess, into two books. Uh, um, okay. And then, yeah. So it became four. 
Yeah. All right. Okay, so, but, how... but it was always meant to be the one. That the, it was one story that we plotted out together. Okay. So that, that that is an interesting question. Like, how does the process of co-authoring work for you two? Like, it's a it's not an easy thing to necessarily keep the same voice all the way through. Um, you said you plotted out the four books. Did you have it like plotted out scene by scene, or like so you knew exactly what you were writing, yeah. or how did yeah. it work? Yeah, so we, we what we did at the very beginning was talk. We basically just lived, you know, had months of just talking and we plotted out the entire story. We went from the, all the way from the beginning all the way to the end and we were talking about, you know, we would get a lot of detail into the scenes um, and then we broke it down into chapters and then into books. And uh, But then we would go off and we would write our own version of uh, each of the books. Oh. And then I would grab Ali's manuscript and I would see what I liked with hers, and she would obviously read mine and tell me what you know she liked. And so I would then merge the two uh, manuscripts together in order to make the first draft. Oh wow! Um, okay, so you so, both written. We obviously bring two different sides, you know, things to the table, and I, sometimes I'll overlook something, and Ali will catch it, and vice versa. But, That's you know, really interesting. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> That's a lot of work. So you've both written your own version of all four books and then you've yeah. basically merged those. And you did the merging, did you, so that you had that consistency of voice all the well, way through? Well, yeah, that, in order to kind of get the one voice, you kind of need somebody to um to do. The, but about yeah. the same time, Ali's always there and always, we're always discussing every single thing yeah. and I'll, you know, I'll always, you know, if there's something that I, I don't feel is right, I'll I'll mention it to Ali and, and obviously if she, she'll always bring up, you know, all these great ideas to the table which I really like, and I may not have uh, hit, you know, and yeah. so I'll just, um, yeah, we just kind of discuss everything. So there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate and uh, a lot of writing as well. Wow, but, that's um, amazing. You guys have written so many words between I you. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole other series in what you've written between you. Yeah, that's it. It'd be funny to, yeah, release all the different versions. <laughs> it's pretty Because there's been, there's been chapters that we've uh, rewritten um, yeah, you know, five, six, seven times. Wow! And in okay. all completely different versions, and then you know, obviously, obviously, there's the one version that's out. <laughs> okay. And have you kept all of those different versions in files? And like, are they all um, sort of like hanging around somewhere? Yeah, like the the first draft uh, for the first book was pretty messy. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, we, we we kind of we I ended up shredding a lot of the stuff um, because it was just like we had piles and piles and piles of manuscripts. Wow. Um, but, yeah, but we've got the files still on the computer. <laughs> and what did the rest of the family think while you guys were doing this? Did they think you were mental? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, our mum's always been a huge, huge supporter of the books, um, of us writing together, and she's very you know, proud that we've uh, managed to not kill each other <laughs> yeah, while writing this thing. And so, um, but, yeah, and obviously our dad, you know, from the get-go, when, when I suggested to Ali that we're going to write a book to get book series together. I think he was a bit nervous <laughs> because obviously he knew that yeah, money's not exactly uh, great in the uh, the arts. But um, yeah, oh, well, but yeah. no, he, I think I think he's you know, he's easing up now. <laughs> yeah, you've got to do now it because you love the, it. The publishing deal. All right, <laughs> so let's talk about that because you initially self published the books um, in yep. was it 2011? Was that when the first? Uh, 2000 and. Uh, yeah, about 2012 we launched the, launched the first them. book. Okay. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that journey. Like why did you decide to self-publish at the time? Um, well, when we started writing the manuscript together, uh, we were thinking, oh, it initially just started as a story, but then once we hit about halfway in the in the book, we were actually thinking, okay, well, this, this actually isn't a, a bad story. And, you know, we started thinking about, you know, maybe getting it published or, you know, submitting it to publishers for self-publishing. Um, and I guess uh, 
we figured Ali was 14 at the time, mm. and we figured, oh, yeah, no one's going to take us seriously when Ali's 14, and we had no writing experience. Um, and so we figured self-publishing might be the way to go to okay. kind of obviously grow a bit of a readership and prove to a publisher that um, the books, uh, you know, are worth reading, I guess. All right. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much what got us started, and that's the reason why we are uh, – because we knew there were a number of uh, public uh, – authors that had done it before, like Chris Paolini, who wrote Aragon, mm -hmm. um, and then there's a, a Roderick Gordon who wrote um, Holes, which was eventually picked up by um, Barry Cunningham at Scholastic. Uh, he was working for Peng Puffin, and then he were, opened up his own publishing house called Chicken House, which oh. is owned by Scholastic. And, um, and obviously it went on, to, uh, I think it's a six-book series right now. Right. So. so you set up your own publishing company? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, but we created our own yeah business name and registered it and um, created a bank account and did the whole yeah we pretty much created a business. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you what originally published it as an as an ebook? Um, like, did you do a lot of research into how that how it was done and what you had to do? I mean, what was the process of actually getting yeah. it out there? Well, uh, obviously, back when we first decided, oh, we, we'll uh, self-publish the books. Ebooks weren't even really a thing. It was like one of those things that everyone was kind of talking about it, but it was never really a big thing because it was so long ago. Yeah. Um, and so I was got, I went into a number of um, I did a lot of research, um, just reading books on self-publishing, and so I went into a lot of the self-publishing companies, which I found weren't for us. Right. Now, a lot of them were trying to con you know convince us to kind of go with them, and they were they were racking up prices, and you know yeah. they were trying to make the whole process sound very um complicated when it really wasn't and I'd everything like because I had done so much research beforehand I knew exactly what they were talking about and I just realized that they were just trying to rip, rip us off pretty much yeah and trying to make the whole thing seem a lot more complicated than it actually was right yeah so you originally self-published like book one as an yep. ebook only um uh, is that correct or you put them all up so what, what we did is we, we self-published the uh, book one for a few months, but then within a few months, we went to our first uh, paperback print. You went to a print run. Okay, so what yeah. what made you do that? Why did you decide to print? Because like, um, a well, lot of we, people were just e-booking, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are e-booking and going through, you know, the Amazon and the um, you mm -hmm. know, Lulu and um, all those sort of um, yeah. uh, sources. But, uh, yeah, no, I think that um, we always wanted to have a, a paperback book. We always wanted to see the book on the shelf. Um, and we always felt that you know a good quality book will go you know will be a lot better than having a bad quality book. Yeah. And so we contacted all um, yeah we, we basically got all the books that we loved, and we just looked on the imprint pages and saw that Griffin Press would would print the books, and Midland Typesetting would uh, do the typesetting. And so I just contacted them directly. Okay. And um and just asked whether they would be interested in doing our book, and and they were, and um yeah that was pretty much that. So what was your initial print run on? Did you just do book one to start with as print, or yeah, did you do just, yeah? just book one? Yeah, because well, we book two hadn't been written; it had been, been plotted out, but book two hadn't actually been written when we first uh, okay. published the first book. Um, and so, uh, it was only three hundred and fifty copies. We knew that we would lose money okay. on the first print run, yep. because I knew that the average self-published book sells a hundred copies. Wow. Um, paperback copies, and so we didn't want to do a huge print run, but at the same time, we knew we were going to lose money. Um, by doing only 350 okay. because we went through all the, the – we paid a lot of money for typesetting and a lot of money for printing. Right. Um, and uh, obviously there was – and obviously for the illustrator as well. So there was a lot of setup costs. Yeah. 
but, you know, obviously it worked out in the end uh, when we started actually turning over a lot of books. Yeah, because you did in the end, didn't you? You were reprinting, yeah. like I was following the journey on your Zakora website and yeah. um, you you ended up doing, you know, several reprints. Like you went, you know, yeah. like you were doing really well with it. Yeah, the, the 350 actually went, because we found so much support up here in Brisbane. A lot of the bookstores were quick to kind of pick us up and, and give us a shot at uh, doing signings and, and things like that. And uh, so at that 350 copy print run only lasted a couple of weeks. Wow. And so we went to another 2,000 copy print run and then that went and then, uh, yeah, it kept on going. And so we ended up selling like 6,000 copies Fantastic. by the end of it. All right. So having said that then, like, you know, you said the books, the bookshops were really supportive because, you know, a lot of self-published people say that they find it difficult to get the distribution for the books. And um, yeah. it sounds as though you've had a very supportive community up there and, yeah. you know, the books are traveling pretty well. So why have you now gone to a, with a mainstream publisher to re-release the books and how did that come about? When we first started, it was kind of our objective to uh, get picked up by a major publishing house. Yeah. But then I think about in our second year, we realized that we were making quite a bit of money. We were like The goal was really to write full-time and write stories that were in bookstores. And we were actually in bookstores, and we were making a, a fair bit of money yeah. um, from the books. Um, and then uh, I guess, yeah, obviously there was so much work involved, and then all of a sudden... Uh, we received the offer from Hachette and obviously you, you don't turn down Hachette. Uh, no. Yeah, you obviously you have to give it some thought and so uh, we figured that, um, you know, I guess it would be a good career move for us um, to get picked up and, yeah, okay. see how that goes. So but that just came out of the blue? Like had they just seen you somewhere or um, how did that happen? Yeah, well, obviously we were in all the bookstores up here and the account managers um, uh, at Hachette would have, um, I think they heard from, um, the bookstores about the series, um, and they must have passed it along and uh, gave it to um, Susanna Sullivan, who's uh, now our publisher at pu- Hachette. And my and publisher. So I think that's how it all kind of came about. Yeah. But uh, yeah, obviously just word of mouth. All right, yeah. so let's talk about that. I, I want to talk to you about the process of working with a publisher, but that word of mouth thing is, has been so important for you guys, and mm. you have worked so hard to, to get that. Like, you, I, I, you know, I, I just have. Um, you know, again, looking at your website and just different things that you guys have done, you've done lots of school visits, you've done a gazillion bookshop signings, like you have yeah. been on the ground face-to-face doing your stuff, um, as well as obviously having your website. So how important do you think those face-to-face presentations have been for creating that word of mouth? Oh, it, yeah, it, it's the best form of promotion you can do. And it, it, like, I don't think we would have been picked up had we not done the um, all those signings and all those school talks. And, you know, as pretty much... You know, we, we do one school talk and then, you know, obviously people hear about it and then, you know, other schools get you in. And it was the same thing with um, the bookstores. You know, we had a number of bookstores call us and ask to stock the book. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it, it kind of just spread. And so as soon as they heard that the books were selling well and they started to hear about, hear about us, yeah, things just kind of kept snowballing. Okay, so, uh, th- so because I think a lot of authors, um, maybe they're shy and uh, yeah. they're not necessarily sort of like seeking out those opportunities, but you would say that they're an essential part of the mix. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, I think, yeah, it's certainly a very important part. Um, you know, I think everyone gets nervous. Like, you know, whenever you put yourself out there, everyone's going to get nervous. But I think, you know, just by doing it, you certainly... It opens up opportunities for sure. All right. Well, what about sort of, you know, social media and things like that? How, how important has that been in your mix as, 
you know, as indie published, because it's, it's something that people often talk about is that online author platform is important for self-publishing. Did you do a lot of that sort of stuff as well? Uh, we, we opened up all the platforms. We obviously started our Facebook and we started our Twitter and we have all the social media there ready for people to cut. If people want to you know, join, then obviously we were there. But I don't think we've been huge. We're not huge. Um, we don't do a lot of social media sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but we, but we do have our Facebook and we do um, promote all of our events and we promote our, uh, you know, whenever we do an event, we'll post up the photos. And so, yeah, we it's there, but um, I don't think we do too much. I think, you know, we probably should do a little bit more. Um, but, yeah, they, obviously it's it certainly helped. And obviously, you know, people always ask, oh, are you on Facebook? And so, you know, at least by having that platform there, um, you know, people can kind of go there and, and send their fan mail and send, you know, messages and, yeah. Have you set that up as Zakora or have you set it up under your names? Uh, Zakora. It probably, we, we read about that. Obviously, it might have, because obviously there's a lot of books that we want to write. And so we have this Facebook page that's just Zakora. Yeah. Um, and so that might, may not have been the best choice, but at the same time, you know, I think it, you know, it's the way that it's worked out and it, it's working out quite well. Yeah, so you've, um, you've created that around your around your brand at, at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, if, if we create another series, obviously we'll um, promote it on the core yeah. wall and, you know, try to get them to kind of Come across. jump across as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. All right, so let's just go back a little bit um, to the process of working with Achette, which is obviously going to be slightly different to, you know, publishing the books yourself in the first place. Like what, what did you find? Like whether, was there anything that really surprised you about that process? Um, the editing, obviously, you know, it, it, there was a lot more editing like when we, cause we already had the first two books written and out on the bookshelves and obviously they were selling well and there was a lot of good feedback. Um, I don't think we thought that we would be editing books one and two as much as we did. Right. Um, Is from a structural then, perspective or a copy editing perspective? I was just copy editing, really. Like, we had a lot of... Because, obviously, the books had been out for three years at that point, and so there was things that we wanted to change ourselves yeah. um, before we actually handed it to Hachette. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, it was mainly just a copy edit, but because we were jumping... Because we're kind of juggling four books at one time, it's, um, there's a lot of back and forth, and, yeah, it just seems... Very, um, yeah, it's just a lot of juggling. Okay, <laughs> with, and did you with the editing? Did you have but, them edited in the first place? Like, were they? Did you did you send them to a professional editor? You know, yeah. Each time with, with the first book, um, we went to a we we uh, paid an editor about two thousand dollars right. uh, to edit the book, um, but we feel like that we were a little bit ripped off because the uh, you know in the first few pages it it kind of it was money well spent, but as yeah as the manuscript went on. Uh, the editor, the editor was finding less and less stuff, and I, it felt very, very rushed. Um, um, and it felt like um, it was a bit of a waste of money, to be honest. Right. Um, and so the second book, uh, we had a lot of the because we had a lot of support from bookstores. We had a, a few uh, book uh, the store managers kind of read through the manuscript. Right. Um, first, and they obviously gave us their opinions, and so it went from being. I think that one actually worked out better because um, they obviously had. Yeah, they know what they're talking. They've read a lot of books, and yeah, yeah. they have yeah fairly strong opinions, and um, and so yeah, that actually worked out pretty well for us. Um, but yeah, it's a very different sort of process when you actually go through Hachette, <laughs> and you bring Suzanne into the equation. Yeah, yeah, it's great being able to like it, the editors that we've been working with have been fantastic, and they, they do bring up 
they find everything. <laughs> they do. I know they all that do. stuff and that you, you kind of you know, think. Obviously, it's, it's a you know, it's a blessing in disguise. I think you know, obviously, when you kind of get all the red marks and you're like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but if you go work your way through it, you know, the book ends up um, you know reading better than ever, and you know, it, we're really grateful. Yeah, that's um, great. So is self-publishing, you know, knowing what you know now and having done what you've done now, is self-publishing something that you'd do again? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, like at the same time, like we have a few book series that we want to write and so obviously, hopefully, uh, uh, Suzanne will like what we've got yeah. uh, coming up. But, um, you know, if, yeah, we, I, I, I don't think I would even, um, if Hachette were not interested, I don't think I would even um, pitch to anyone else because we know that we can make a lot of money through self-publishing. And okay. so I would certainly, um, you know, Probably go straight to a you know two thousand three thousand copy print run of oh, the you next would. series. Okay, and so you wouldn't sort of get an agent and try to sort of pitch it out all over the place. Um, no, I don't think so. No, because we, like, we were making like cause it, had we gone for a few more months, we would have crossed the hundred thousand dollar mark, and you know we were making lots of money and we were writing full time, and that's wow. you know yeah like it's it, yeah we it's exactly what we were after, and so you know, and dream. obviously you have a lot of control there as well. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I definitely would self publish again, but you know obviously. It would be fantastic to kind of keep working with um, Hachette and, um, yeah. Was that control thing, because that's something that self-publishers, indie publishers talk about a lot is that, you know, control aspect. Was that difficult to give up when you went with um, Hachette? Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it is pretty tricky. Like, obviously, after three years and you had control over promotion, you had control over, yeah, publicity, just, just uh, you had control over pretty much everything. And I kind of love that control because I've loved books ever since you know, I, was, I was in high school and I love everything about the whole industry and so it's not just writing that I love it's it's kind of everything and kind of when you kind of have to just focus on just the writing I found that a little bit tricky okay. um, when I kind of love cover design I love artwork I love everything about books I think um, and so that was pretty tricky but um, but no Hashem have done a great job and, you know, with the books and yeah I guess but, yeah, I think yeah I think I do miss the control I think a little bit. <laughs> Did they do have they done anything though that like surprised you that you thought oh I wouldn't have thought of that I'm you know and now you know it for the next um you know if you do self publish again you sort of got more of an insight into maybe a team approach. Um Yeah that yeah uh, that's a good question. Um I don't, yeah, like everything, we, we did a lot of the, the same things with our, uh, but I think the advanced reading copies we didn't do, that's for sure, and yeah. we kind of created word of mouth before the books came out, yeah. but obviously that would have cost a fair bit of money, and um, I don't think so, uh, that would be suitable for self-publishing, but um, yeah, no, I think, because we went through so many avenues that, because um, we, we went through Griffin Press the same publishers that Hachette go through, and we almost went through the same channels. And so interesting. a lot of it was, was the same. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right, so what then um, would be your top three tips for writers? Um, certainly perseverance. Perseverance was probably the biggest thing that made it, because obviously you had to go three years and there was a lot of um, you know, ups and downs. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think perseverance is the big one. Did you ever um, have days where you thought this is ridiculous? I, I don't need to oh, do this anymore. Oh yeah, all the time. Did you? <laughs> like, it was like every single week. You just like, what are we doing? You yeah, know, we were like we were start rolling over so much money, and there was so much money involved um, that it started to kind of get a little bit crazy. Right. Um, but yeah, obviously, and obviously the, the amount of signings that we were doing was kind of getting crazy, and then you had so much 
work on your plate. You had to kind of quit your job to kind of yeah. keep up with it all, and it yeah. all kind of felt a little bit crazy, but um, but it all worked out. Yeah, right. <laughs> so perseverance, yep. Perseverance. What's um, number two? I guess just putting yourself out there. You have to kind of um, you have to do the book signings. You have to do the uh, school talks. Um, you know, obviously, it all, word of mouth is pretty much everything. It's the reason why we were, you know, eventually picked up and why we did so well. Um, but yeah, if you're self-publishing, I think the you know the biggest thing is just produce the best book you possibly can. Okay. Um, you know, the fact that we produced a good book, a high-quality book, the bookstores instantly got us in, and they were promoting the book. Um, and and obviously, people kind of came back um, for the second one. Um, and so I think yeah, producing a a, a book of high quality is yeah super important. Yeah, because it's, it's that, that support from the bookstores is so incredibly important, isn't it? And it's um, mm. not always easy to get if you are an indie published book. That's it. Yeah, I think that a lot of people, uh, yeah, people that sub-publish through the other yeah, channels, I think they stumble because they wonder why they can't get into the bookstores. And it's because the book quality, it's okay, but it's really, you know, it's not to the level that um, the big publishers um, produce. Yeah. And so, yeah, by doing that, yeah, by going through the, you know, the, the good typesetters and through the good printers, you produce a good quality book and then obviously the bookstores will then support, support that, the author and support the book. That cover yeah. that you had, like the cover of the, the current series, the new release series is, is fantastic, but you had amazing illustrations on your, on your indie published versions as well. Yeah. Yeah, Nina Sundberg. She's like she has millions of fans. She's a big artist over in Finland. Wow. And uh, yeah, so yeah, we've had fans that we go to the Supernova conventions here, and we have hundreds of uh, readers recognize her artwork and yeah, and buy the book because of it. Because of her um, artwork, isn't that amazing? Yeah, no, she was massive, and so it was a little bit of a shame to lose that artwork. But yeah, obviously, it, we knew that was going to be the case. Yeah, but the new um, covers yeah. are also fantastic. Oh, so, they're, yeah. they're fantastic. Laura Tolton's a yeah, great yeah. artist, and um, yeah, no, it's pretty fantastic. cool. All right, well, um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences, which are really, really interesting. I think that there's a lot of people, like not just, um, I mean, you know, the, that crossover from indie to um, what do you call it? It's hybrid publishing, isn't it, these days? Um, the crossover there is, is a really interesting one for a lot of people and I think that it's um, it's great to get some insight into that. So thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you, Alison. Wow, it takes guts and effort to self-publish, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Like, there's a you know an inherent self-belief involved in what those guys have done. And I... To me, I think one of the biggest lessons that I think any author, and I, whether, you know, how established you are, how new you are, whether you're self-published or whether you're um, mainstream published or whatever, mm. um, that uh, business of going out face-to-face and doing book signings and doing school visits and doing yep. the library talks and all that sort of stuff um, is is a huge thing. And I remember when we talked to John Purcell, way back in episode four, Long Wasn't time it? ago, yes. Long time ago. Um, at the book uh, bookseller, he was talking about Matthew Riley and, you know, yes. how Matthew Riley did exactly the same thing with regards to his books. Um, and just that word of mouth and the feeling of when people meet you like that, they become mm. invested mm. in what you're doing and they're much more willing, you know, much more likely to talk about you and stuff. And social media is fantastic for talking to lots of people and all that sort of stuff. But that one-on-one you know, I've met her thing. Yes, is is you just it's invaluable, and I think it's something that you know if 
if you're finding that you've put something out there and it's maybe not moving along as much as you would like, mm. think about doing some things like that. Thinking about um, contacting local bookshops or going to schools if it's children's fiction or organising library talks, you know, get mm. put yourself out there. And I know it's hard. It's really hard. I get it. Yes. But it's an absolutely essential part of any author platform you know it's not all online you've got to still maintain that connection I think yeah and I think that it's just that people think that once they self-publish the their work is done but in fact the much harder work comes after you write the book and Mm. after you publish the book Mm. and that is all in the marketing of the book and just getting it out there and making sure it's in people's hands and making sure though I think it's so important to have a strategy before you actually publish the book so that you can roll it out mm. when when the book is finally out. You may hear some dogs barking in the background, everybody. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I actually self-published a book oh, more than 10 years ago now just to experience it, to be honest. Did you? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, because I just You've wanted to You've been keeping secrets from me. <laughs> I just wanted to know what it was like. At the time, I was writing a lot of career stories for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and I was really passionate about helping people in their careers. So I wrote a careers book for kind of like year 12 and first year uni type All right. you know, people, and it was called So Now What? How to Figure Out the Rest of Your Life. Mm, but good I, title. Thank you. Um, but I made sure I was really strategic in the writing of it and I included, you know, some iconic people like, um, you know, Lane Beachley and George Gregan and, you know, John McGrath and people who were looked up to and who were role models, not necessarily because I thought that you 12 people were going to buy it, but because I knew that journalists would write about it you know, who yep. covered those beats. Yep. So sports journalists were going to write about, would write about the book because Lane Beachley was going to be in it. You yep. know, a business person would write about the book because um, John McGraw was going to be in it. And it's the parents of those children that were going to buy them that book. Mm. But then the thing that, the other thing that helped a lot in terms of the strategy was instead of, you know, hoping for one sale here, one sale there, one sale here, which takes a lot of effort and a lot of, you know, um, shoe leather, is I targeted it to careers advisors and got them to buy 30 in one go. Oh. So... That was just great. Every time it might open an envelope, there'd be a check and there'd be, you know, an order for 30 and that was 30 done in one sale instead of having putting in all that effort just for one sale. Look at you go, Valerie. So, See? So that's this, just, is, this is why you do a podcast, so that we can all <laughs> learn from you. <laughs> so I hope that's useful to anybody. Oh, it's sales. useful to me. I'm going to go and write something that I can do that with. <laughs> well, a friend of I got the idea because a friend of mine wrote this really cute book on um, cats, of course. Of course. Yeah. But what he else? pre-sold 20000 <gasps> to a cat food company. Smart. Oh. Smart. Wow. And another friend of mine wrote a book on, of all things, cocktails and snacks. Mm. I know, bizarre. But she sold a whole chunk to Liquorland to be their point of sale sort of, you well, know, cocktails impulse Cocktails and snacks? I mean, to me, cats is more bizarre than cocktails and snacks. <laughs> cats is not bizarre. I would purchase the cocktails and snacks before I would purchase the cats. Well, I would purchase the cats. So. <laughs> See, we are two different market segments. Yeah, well, right there you there. go. There you go. <laughs> 
All right. But you know, we just need to combine those three things into one book. Yes. There it is. There's my book, right? Cocktails, snacks, cats, and careers. Perfect. All right. Um, So, yeah, my point is think about it strategically. Yes. All right. Now, our working writer's tip this week. I came, I mean, I come across this all the time. So many people say, and do you hear this too, Al? You know, they say, look, I'm, I'm, I just feel like an imposter. I don't really know whether I'm, I'm, I can do this freelance writing thing or I can do this, you know, novel writing thing. I just feel like an imposter. I don't know what to do about that. What's your answer? I feel it. No. (laughs) I do. Of course I do. No. Everybody does except you, Val. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Seriously. I was, it's so funny that you asked this question because just this week I was sitting here thinking, uh, who am I kidding? Like, really? Like, <laughs> I, I just, wait, wait, I just think you always, no matter what you're working on, like, particularly, I probably don't feel like an imposter as a freelance writer anymore, although I still have moments of that too, because I think, oh, you know, I used to be good. Am I still good? Like, oh, that's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> it's just human nature, Valerie. Yeah. And then, um, and then I was, I've been working on a new um, middle grade, you know, novel. And I'm sitting here the other day thinking, well, maybe just maybe the Mapmaker Chronicles was just like one of those random things and it will never happen again. And <laughs> maybe I just, you know, maybe I just really lucked out with an idea. And I just honestly It's freaking think, awesome series, you nutbag. I, look, I, you know, I yes, but it still feels like someone else wrote it. <laughs> it really does. I was reading it to my... I was reading it to my youngest son last night and I was just thinking, I said, I said to him, you know, when I read this to you, does it feel weird, you know, that you're thinking that mum wrote it? Mm-hmm. And he goes, he goes, not really, mum, because, you know, it's like all the other books. You've done a really good job. It sounds like someone else wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of feel like that. But, yeah, look, I think the whole imposter thing is um, I, I, I don't honestly think that anybody ever really gets past that feeling of, mm. wow, how did this happen? Mm. Um, but I think the key to it is you just keep doing it. Yeah, it's the only way to not feel like you're an imposter is to make yourself, you know, make, get, get so much work, do so many things um, that you, you just have to basically smack yourself in the head occasionally and go, don't be an idiot. Yeah. You're doing fine. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, that's what it is. But, yeah, I... I'm I'm just laughing because I seriously was my guest the other day going, Oh God, I'm such an imposter. <laughs> I think that's true that everyone everyone does feel that way at different points in time. And I think that what you've just said is just, you just keep doing it because every time you do it you get that tiny little bit more confident. That's right. And even though it's tiny, um, it all adds up. Yeah. So over a period of time, you also need to pause and reflect and realise, look over the last year or even last three months and realise I've had X number of things published during that time or I've been able to write X number of words and got feedback on it that they're actually good. So I think that it's, it's, it is just keep doing it because what's hard is when you just – um, let yourself go fallow in a sense and six months later you actually haven't done that much yeah, so you right. do feel like an imposter because that's you actually right. haven't done anything yeah. whereas if you have that's why it's so important to reflect and kind of tell yourself yeah you know I've, I've actually done quite a few things and it's great to acknowledge that to yourself. Uh, you know I have to say I think that that is fantastic advice because I this again is something else I've just been recently thinking about. I, I think if you're the kind of personality um, 
like I, I am, like I'm always setting new goals and I'm always striving for something new mm. and there's always some new thing that I'm trying to do and I'm, you know, writing something else. And I think sometimes you can be looking forward so much that you don't actually take stock. You don't take a moment to go, oh, okay, well, here I am. This is what I've done and this is, you know, this is okay, you know. And yeah. if you look, as you say, you look back at where you've come from and you go, actually, yeah, I've I've achieved a lot of stuff. I think sometimes, you know, it's important to keep your eyes on the prize, whatever your prize might be. Mm. But you do you can't just be looking forward to the point where you don't actually ever stop to enjoy the moment that you've created for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of enjoying the moment, I'd like to um, enjoy our moment for a minute. To, a and, moment. Yes, and say okay. thank you to <laughs> Lil Kenobi. Lil Kenobi, who has left a lovely five-star review on iTunes, and Lil Kenobi has um, titled it, They Know What They're Talking About. So thank you, Lil Kenobi. There you go. Now I feel less like an imposter. (laughs) (laughs) And Lil says, um, the podcast is wonderfully informative, engaging and practical. I would happily recommend it to writers at any stage of their journey. So thank you so much. You've made our day. Thank you so much. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it helps us in the ratings and it keeps us in the What's Hot section. And thank you for keeping us there. Really appreciate that. Uh, but that brings us kind of to the end of our podcast, uh, well, end of our episode this week. possible? I do not know. We're just having so much fun. What you could will... probably throw another grammar question out there now. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, keep us going. <laughs> I could, but I might save it for next week. So speaking of next week, what um, will you be doing until we chat again? Uh, well, I'll be ploughing on with my uh, current manuscript, my new middle grade novel. I will be writing synopses. Oh, God, I tell you what. Ooh. I'm writing long synopses of each of the Mapmaker books. Oh. Okay. I've been asked to do that. And I'm doing that. And I cannot tell you how difficult it is to, to do. Because Why? I have to read the books. <laughs> again. Oh, yeah, you forget, don't you? It's like doing an exam. It is. I have to read mm. the books again to remember what happened where and stuff. It's quite funny. Um, so I'll be doing that, which is, you know. Ask your kids. Well, I, I was actually going to um, go to one of the schools and say, can you just get the kids to storyboard these chapters for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> I, I want someone to do it for me. That's anyway, what about you? What will you be doing? I will die next week be in my new house <gasps> oh excitement ba, ba, ba. yeah so I, I can't honestly remember what it looks like or what it's like inside because it was such a whirlwind you know inspection oh, um so yeah it is hilarious people have been asking us about it and i've been going oh i can't remember they're going what color is it oh i can't remember has it got how many bedrooms is it i mean you know like do you remember the details have you got <laughs> i've got the address <laughs> so I know where oh, I'm turning up to. Good. All right. And have you packed? Yeah. There's the big question. Uh, no, I have not. So that is, um, that's the next thing I'll be doing as well. Mm. Excitement. Um, anyway, we look forward to chatting to you next week. Thank you so much for listening and um, have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 